So the new year's just started, and uh, it occurred to me we covered a lot of material Tuesday night after Tuesday night after Tuesday night over the course of the year, and uh, I felt inspired to go back to the root, return to the root of the teachings. So we're going to, we're going to spend some time with the Four Noble Truths tonight. Are folks familiar with the Four Noble Truths? No? Some, some, some. It's a good place to start with learning, learning about um, Zen practice. Um, one of the reasons one of the reasons it's so useful is because we because we have so many different teachings. There's just this whole sea of Zen teachings, like endless poems, cool stories, centuries and centuries of writing and commentary. So it can be kind of hard to know where to begin, and it can also be uh, be um, easy to lose focus of what we're up to. So coming back to the Four Noble Truths, I think brings our focus back to what is it that we're, do, we're doing here? What is all this for? And the, the Four Noble Truths center around what the Buddha considered to be, uh, in his teaching, the central spiritual problem. We have, we have, a, lot of, we have a lot of challenges in our lives, and any, number of, any number of difficulties, including some very profound ones, but he identified a core center to the challenges. So he, uh, he, when faced with really complicated metaphysical questions, he often set those aside. It's not conducive to the sort of liberation he was trying to teach folks. Instead, he focused on one thing, and that is the problem of suffering. The spiritual problem that the Buddha done. Um, it's popular these days to um, bend a, a, a Buddhist quote and say that the Buddha only taught suffering and the end of suffering. It's not quite, actually. The Buddha taught a lot of stuff, a whole lot of stuff. But I, I, do, I do have faith in the fact that pretty much everything can hang on the framework of the Four Noble Truths that center on suffering, the, uh, the cause of the origin or the arising of suffering, the, um, the good news, which is the ending of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and then the fourth, which is the path. So we'll go over these in some, some different ways. Yeah, please, come on in. Make yourselves comfy. Um, so it's fine to take the Buddha's word for it that this is an important thing to consider. Um, one of the ways we start to find that actually, yeah, this, these four noble truths, this problem of suffering, is important in my, my own actual life, is to recognize the applicability. And the way we do that is to start to understand is what did the Buddha mean by suffering? It's, um, it sounds like a pretty general word. So one of the ways that the the Four Noble Truths are set up is in the, in the format of a, uh, actually of a medical diagnosis, I understand, of yeah, ancient India. The format is you talk about one, the problem, then you, uh, two, discern its causes, conditions, its roots. Uh, then you give the prognosis, the possibility of health, perhaps, and then uh, the remedy, the course of treatment. 
So that's the, that's the model, and that's one of the reasons that the Buddha is called the Great Physician. It's one of his nicknames. Not a bad nickname to have. So each of the, each of the Four Noble Truths is uh, associated with a certain practice. Uh, he, thankfully, the Buddha doesn't just give us bad news <laughs> and then uh, say good luck. Uh, the Four Noble Truths entail, entail a path of practice, but each one of the truths has something for us to do. And the, first, the, the task of the First Noble Truth is to understand it, to comprehend it. And this is like, uh, intellectually, yes, but also in terms of your, your own experience. So I wanted to open this up uh, by telling a little bit of a story. Did you, did you go home for the holidays? Yeah, 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 me too. A couple of weeks ago, I, I flew to my home state, and uh, uh, I tend to take a lot of care with this. I, I, I wear masks a lot of the time, especially when I travel, but I think that I contracted COVID while I was on the airplane. And so I, I arrived with my wife, and uh, within a couple of days, we realized that we're quite sick. Right? Um, uh, three words. This is suffering. <laughs> um, one of the definitions of suffering in the Buddhist teaching is uh, uh, aging, illness, and death. It's like this big trio. But it, it also includes any number of uh, any number of conditions of unease, many of which were present when I discovered I was sick going home for the holiday. So. Um, I don't know about you, but before I go home for the holiday, I have all these visions of the great things that I'm going to do when I get there. I was going to cook with my sister, one of my favorite things to do with her. I was going to have a heart-to-heart -heart with my mom about how her religious life was going. I was going to talk to my dad about his cool new hobby of drawing. You know, like, these things that I really wanted to do. I had all these expectations and hopes. And, um, alas, my expectations came into contact with reality. And I didn't get to have what I wanted. And that's, that's one of the classic definitions of suffering in the Buddhist teaching, not getting what one wants. How pervasive is that, right? Um, so uh, just to wrap up the, the anecdote, um, everything was fine. I'm quite, I'm quite okay and have since recovered. And much to my surprise, while I, was, while I was there, I could have really lamented and sort of doubled down on the suffering. Like, oh, I hate this. I have hate on top of misfortune. But uh, what arose instead was just, oh, this is okay. This is what's happening now. So all these varieties of suffering, aging, illness, and death, one that uh, two others that I want to highlight just to give you a sense of the scope of what the Buddha is talking about. One is uh, including the sort of deep existential problem of being a human being. The fact that we are promised both life and death. And what that brings up for us when we face the problem of death. So this is a, this is a huge, huge issue psychologically for us. It tends to be 
And then all the way on the other end of the spectrum is just that subtle feeling that you may or may not, um, or you'll be familiar with to a greater or lesser degrees. It's just that little feeling that something is always just a tiny bit off. So even, if, even if things are going quite well, it's just like, oh, maybe they could be a little better. Or, um, oh, I'm really enjoying this sense pleasure that I'm having. But alas, it is impermanent and I lose it. And that hurts. So you're getting a sense of just that whole like broad array. And all of this is encompassed in this ancient Indian word uh, called dukkha. And there's an image that totally conveys uh, dukkha, and that is uh, a wheel that's just a little bit off its axis. So when it when it goes in a circle, you actually hear the sound dukkha, dukkha, dukkha. And this is our this is the nature of our life. Everything's just a little bit off its axis. So we live a wobbly life. Personal truth. And the task is to understand, understand this. And understand it directly. We have to understand it intellectually in order to recognize it. But then to see how it's actually showing up in our lives. Because this is precisely where the good news comes from. Uh, Suzuki Roshi, the founder of this temple, said that our problems actually are our, that's our meditation. He has this other slogan, enjoying your problems. You should enjoy your problems. It's hard to buy that. And sometimes when things are going really poorly, I, I uh, kind of think he's taunting me. Um, but he makes a good point. He's like, the most recent teaching I read of this, it more or less was like, the problems you have, um, enjoy them because if, if one of them goes away, another one's just going to pop right back up. And it could even be worse. And you're going to wish you had your old problem instead of your current problem. So just enjoy the problems you have, he says. I don't know what you make of that. At least, it, it, it at least gives me pause when my impulse is to hate my problems. I say, oh, maybe there's, maybe there's something here. More inspiring than, hey, it could be worse, is, uh, is the fact that it's, it's, in the, it's in the problems themselves that freedom is found. It's, uh, it's through sort of composting our problems and being with them in a sort of intimate way that we discover what freedom is all about and how to find it. So really understanding, understanding dukkha, understanding suffering. It takes, it takes uh, in order for it to go all the way in, the, it said if, if it goes all the way in, full understanding of dukkha, complete understanding, we're liberated. But thankfully for us, we have a partial understanding. So we'll have problems for the time being. So the, the malady, that's noble truth number one. Noble truth number two looks at uh, the cause, the origin, the arising. How did we get into this mess? What did I do wrong? <laughs> uh, I, I'll assure you this is a, dukkha, dukkha is universal for us. It's not like any of us did anything wrong, and now Duke has arisen. Um, thankfully, we're all in this together. What the Buddha points to, or a way that this is commonly taught, is that um, we're looking for the cause of suffering, and we get some clues. The, the classic pointings are 
uh, a certain kind of darkening of the mind, encompassed under the English word ignorance, which in the Indian language is exactly the opposite of wisdom, which is what liberates. It's kind of like a darkening of the mind. Something that's a little more workable, that's identified as a, as a cause or origin of suffering, is a certain kind of craving, a certain kind of desire. And I'm, re I'm really gonna lay it on thick and say it a third time and say a certain kind of desire. Because we can, we can get this idea when we hear the Four Noble Truths that like all desires, everything I ever desire, is, that's wrong and I'm gonna suffer for it. And that's not the message that is meant. There are, uh, there are forms of desire that are actually really important for the cultivation of wholesome virtues. And how much desire does it take to get on your meditation cushion? Especially when you don't feel like it. It takes a lot of effort, we need that. But the, uh, the second noble truth, this, um, this kind of craving that leads on to, on to suffering, is uh, one translated, translator summarizes it this way. It's kind of like, the desire, a couple of varieties, the desire for um, sense pleasures and planning for them that we may or may not get, uh, sort of like hankering and relishing for sense pleasures is one. Another is um, something we cannot avoid, which are, is our desire for survival, which we need. And then the the other one is this sort of drive and desire for um, sort of like building up an identity based on status and um, gain and reputation, like that whole field, that whole field of desire. That one's a little more complicated because there, there are real ways in the way we live our lives that we, we need all these things. Does anyone hear that? You hear them and you go, wait a second. I need these to like do my job or go to work in the morning. And you do. You do. You need a certain kind of desire. But the art becomes how to be skillful with your desires. And how to be skillful with the life you live. The, ba the whole basic question under the Four Noble Truths is, um, is just how do I, like this one being you yourself, how do I reflect on and approach the activities of my life in a way that diminishes suffering rather than grows it? That's the, that's the whole summary of what all the practice is for. And um, while there are no easy answers to that question, it's a, it's a practice of continuous reflection. Uh, no easy answers, there's a lot of really good clues, practices, teachings, and support that come out of the, the community and that come out of the, the teaching itself. So third noble truth, we get to the good news. That uh, as far as the Buddha is concerned, though it may not look like it, there is such a thing as an ending of this particular kind of suffering that the Buddha is talking about. I think that's worth a pause. That's a pretty ra it's a radical statement. That there is, there is such a thing as an ending to dukkha. That there's a there's a possibility in in this awareness, like this one, that we're living, 
and in, the, in this heart to live life in a way or be, be with this suffering world even in a way that there's no conflict whatsoever between your heart and the world. That is radical. Just radical. Um, and an inspiring possibility. The, I think the art of it is um, is actually how to how to hear that and how to practice a path like a, a path that promises an end of suffering in a way that um, one we don't get discouraged and two it includes everybody one not getting discouraged that has to do with the fact of like hearing hearing something that's like a, a goal of a practice that's like a bajillion miles away, it might, it might as well be like across the universe or something. Occasionally it has happened that some, someone has heard something like that and gone, that's not my life. That's, not, that's just not possible for me. And so the, the art of it is like how to stay oriented to a radical possibility of freedom and, and recognizing that we like uh, how to keep our heart about us. And there are ways to do this. The other, the other part, the other part is um, a freedom that includes everyone. This one is really interesting. Sojin Mel Weitzman, who was a co-abbot here for some time, and is the founder of Berkeley Zen Center, Someone asked him, what does it mean to save all beings? Which is one way, one way of framing the third truth. <coughs> that all, be, all beings be free from suffering. Someone asked now, Sojin, what does it mean to free all beings? And Mel's response was, uh, it means to free all the beings of your own heart and mind. I think the for the right, the right person in the right moment, that's a good answer. And we have a lot, we have even more work to do than that. <laughs> we have more work to do than that. Sojin's answer points to something really deep that I, I just wanna, I just wanna loft into the room, which is the fact that actually there's no, there's no being we experience that is not all of a piece. In the, in the Zen reckoning, it's a very true and profound statement that we're all doing this together in a way that's deeper than we know. We have this, there's this image in the Yogacara teaching, kind of like we're all waves on the surface of the ocean. We're all experiencing this as if we're different, separate bits, and we need to do that. But there's something, there's something deep and connected and profound going on here. That's more than me sitting up here and you sitting over there. I think that points to, that it points to, um, I think somehow Sojin, Sojin Roshi's answer, liberating all the beings of your own mind, actually it does include everyone who's outside of your own mind.
So there are ways to stay encouraged. That was the other art of the, the third noble truth. And the, the, way, the way I think about this is actually to appreciate the pleasures of the path as they come. Practicing, practicing, uh, practicing Zen, practicing the Dharma, can be, some, can be something people do for 50, 60, 70 years. It's amazing. There's still more to do. Um, and I think everywhere from here all the way to Buddhahood, way over here, there are delights all the way along. Delights, joys, varieties of happiness and well-being. And I think one of the ways we stay encouraged as we go is to know freedom when we taste it. To know happiness when we taste it. So one of the pleasures that can bolster us is community, sangha. I find there, there, there have been days, confession, there have been days in the, I guess, 20 years I've been meditating, there have been days where I've been like, can't do it anymore, not going to do it anymore. And on those days, I do it for other people. And then those days where I'm like, I can't do this for other people. When uh, that motivation fails, then I'm going to do this for me. I'm going to do it for me today. Today I'm going to get up and I know that I feel better when I meditate, so I'm just going to get up and meditate today. Sometimes we practice for others. Sometimes we practice for ourselves. Sometimes we practice for both. The, the Buddha said a, a wise person of great wisdom uh, practices for their own benefit, the benefit of others, and the benefit of both. That's how we do this. Um, so there's the, the sort of encouragement of community to keep us going. Then there are like all of these little joys that maybe, I don't know, we can talk about. Um, they're, they're, they're the pleasures of blameless conduct. That may sound a little goody-two-shoes, but it is really yummy when the, when the mind is uh, free of regret for however long. This is a good time of year to think about that. New Year's resolutions and all. There are these other pleasures that can keep us going, like other encouragements that are the simple pleasure of meditation. A concentrated mind is a very pleasant mind, whereas a, a, a scattered mind can actually be really uncomfortable. So, yeah, pleasures of virtue, pleasures of concentration, pleasures of community. And then, in a, I'm going to use a general word because it can pop up in all kinds of ways. But uh, when, when a mind and a heart knows that it's more free than it's been before, and you have to, you, like, you taste a moment of being more free, it's just like a fire goes on in the heart. It's so pleasant. It's just like, ah, yes. There, there's, there's confidence that comes forward and the sort of beauty in the heart and mind. It's a real encouragement. It's not all over here in Buddha. We're not talking about perfection. It's just like these little moments. Of, oh, in this moment, this one breath, I'm more free than I was one breath ago. And that brings encouragement. So, the malady, the cause, the good news, 
And then the fourth level truth, which really deserves four hours of discussion, I'm going to cover in about two minutes, is that there is a, uh, a path of practice leading to the ending of suffering. The, um, the Zen reckoning of this, uh, I'm being a little creative with this part of the teaching, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> but, uh, the Zen reckoning of this really emphasizes Zazen and really emphasizes the precepts. There's some connections in here that I won't make for sake of time. But in the, in the classical formulation, the, the path to the ending of suffering is eight practices. Eight practices that um, develop in the mind the conditions such that uh, far from the darkening of mind that leads to suffering, there's an illuminating of liberating wisdom. So what, that, what the illumination looks like exactly, that's less important than knowing that cultivating eight practices, taking eight steps, um, lays the groundwork, plants the seeds. And it's things like, um, just to name them, uh, wise view, wise intentions, intentions that, that tend toward generosity and compassion and non-harm. Uh, new intention, how to be wise with our speech, how to be wise with our action, our livelihood, this is a big one for us. Um, and then the last three have to do with meditation, calling wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. These eight, when fully unpacked, include a lot of uh, the really practical rubber meets the road considerations of how we do our practice. Let's see. So I think it's the, is it the 2nd of January today? It's a fresh year, 2024. I was trying to, I was trying to think of some slogan that had to do with 24s uh, yesterday. It was like, ah, oh, 24 hours of mindfulness. No, 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 that's no good. 24, uh, la, 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 la. Uh, nothing good happened. Let me, know, let me know if you come up with something that's attached to 24. But the turning over of the year, I know we make much of it with fireworks and resolutions and all. I think it actually has, for, for us, I think it has important psychological consequences. It's like, oh, actually something has just ended. The sun and the earth actually did do something for 365 days. And I think, I think it's an important time to, to, yes, take stock, and in terms of practice, in terms of the practice, come back to this question of, oh yeah, what is the fundamental question that the Buddha's trying to solve here, and how do we do it? Getting like right back into the basics. I think it's a really good time for that. Um, in closing, I'll say just to consider, consider what I said, kind of just like the um, two and a half minute trailer of the Four Noble Truths. There's really a lot to unpack here. And I'll, there's, there's so much beautiful teaching attached to these. There's some uh, great teachings by a translator named Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, um, I'm sure Paul Haller has some beautiful teachings of the Four Noble Truths, a teacher here. Yeah. 
there's a lot out there. So we'll discuss some more as the evening goes on, but those are my comments for the night. Um, we'll have time we'll have time for some questions, we'll also have, have time for some folks to pair up and discuss. So thank you for your attention.